Welcome back to Menno HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with the Mennonite Incorporated. I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger, and today I'll be in conversation with Kate Desjardins, the new Executive Director of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship. This podcast will allow us to get to know Kate, including her professional interests and her hopes and aspirations for Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship. Kate currently works part-time as a chaplain at Cincinnati Children's, and she is heavily involved in several research projects regarding chaplaincy. Kate, it is great to have this opportunity to introduce you to the wider community. Can you tell me a bit about yourself, where you're from, your training? It's so good to be here. Thanks for your time to do this. So excited for MHF, so excited to be in this role and get to know everyone listening and everyone within MHF. I grew up in Wisconsin, although I always say uh, Wisconsin isn't home in the deepest sense. My mom is from Savannah, Georgia, so deep south, and my dad is from uh, Maine, an area of Maine where mostly French is spoken still to this day. And Wisconsin is sort of where they ended up. I grew up actually away from the Mennonite Church. My parents attended a small Southern Baptist church in Wisconsin when I was a child, and I really loved it. I loved the church. I loved potlucks uh, more than anything. Miss Flores' roles, I will always remember those. So for me, church was just this really joyful experience. My parents shifted to a larger church ostensibly because they really wanted me to have a youth group as I became a teenager, and I really didn't love it. It just was not a place where I felt seen or heard. The church continued to get bigger and bigger. I think it's a great church objectively. It just really wasn't a place that felt great for me. In the midst of kind of being in the middle of that, I went to Wheaton. I was a classical harpist. I still am. And so I went to Wheaton because of its faith background, but also because they had a great harp teacher that I'd already been studying with for a while. And I really enjoyed that. I I church hopped a lot. I was actually thinking today about all the different denominations I visited while I was at Wheaton. I was like Anglican for a little while, Episcopal for a little while, Baptist again for a little while, (laughs) uh, Lutheran for a little while. And when I left Wheaton and moved back home for a little while, moved back home, I was looking for a church home and through a series of circumstances, ended up going to church where my parents' neighbors went, uh, which was the Mennonite church. And I always say it really came down to the fact that it met at six at night, which is fabulous for a young adult, and there was potluck every week. So I do give the advice to churches saying, how can we get our young adults involved? I say, feed them, feed them, feed them. Um, (laughs) And I really love that church. It felt like my childhood church. And from there, I went to seminary pretty quickly, and I, I did go to AMBS. I wanted to dive into Mennonite theology. I did not consider chaplaincy or healthcare when I was at AMBS. I was on the younger end there, and that was kind of considered the very mature thing to do is to be a chaplain. So it was like, oh, you know, you can be a youth pastor or a kid's pastor, Um, which I I do think happens to young women in seminary at times. Um, It's an interesting dynamic, but ultimately found my way to chaplaincy through pediatrics. And that was really fortuitous. Again, a lot of pieces of my life have been fortuitous, but that was seven years ago, and I have been in pediatric chaplaincy ever since. I um, trained at Cleveland Clinic and then here at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And from there, ultimately went on to get a master's in public health to look at how religion impacts health outcomes, whether that's in the hospital, in a public health setting, in international settings and to be able to have the skills to engage in research, which is something 
chaplains have been a little bit suspicious of. We don't like the idea of quantifying God, but that's not what research in spiritual care is. It's really looking at how chaplains, how even nurses that provide spiritual care, what they're doing and how that impacts patients so that we can do what we do better and with, with greater impact. It makes a lot of sense for that to be studied from the perspective of the chaplain as opposed to the physician studying how religion impacts health. You certainly have that expertise to do that. Can you tell me a little bit more about the chaplaincy work you've been doing at Cincinnati Children's Hospital? Yeah, so alongside my research, I have been working on and around a unit that is one of our smaller units, actually. I have fewer patients than a number of my colleagues but all of my patients use a breathing tube, usually through a tracheostomy, sometimes through BiPAP, which is a mask with positive pressure, but mostly through a tracheostomy uh, chronically, meaning it's not an emergency intervention in the ICU. It's something that they are reliant on for survival. And if we foresee that they, they will be able to sort of get off of that ventilator, get off of that breathing tube, it's a ways in the future. And sometimes this is little preemies, that they've done quite well. So the outcome is good, but their lungs are just still too small. And so they need three or four years of positive ventilation. And sometimes, quite frequently, uh, it is children who have quite a lot of neurological problems or severe muscle problems. So we, we do see our kids with spinal muscular atrophy, SMA, as well as our older, uh, we have youth with uh, muscular dystrophies as well. I love that work. It's a very different type of chaplaincy than, say, hospice chaplaincy. Though some of my patients are working with palliative care, it's really long-term. I've known a few of my patients for five years now, and it's really working with parents on a long-term spiritual journey. What, what does having a child dependent on this technology mean uh, for you as a family? How does it reshape your view of being a mother? Even that idea of dependence, we talk about theologically a lot. You, know, you and I are dependent on God every moment, and yet we, we view people in society who are dependent on some kind of technology or help as somehow less than. And so it's just an interesting, it's an interesting ground for conversations. I think in general, dealing with pediatrics, you always have a parent or a guardian. So what, what have been some like big challenges for the parents to process while they're thinking about putting their child on long-term ventilation? I'd say for about half of the parents I work with, they reflect that it doesn't feel like a choice for various reasons, whether it's religious or theological or emotional. If they're given the choice between putting this child on their child on this technology, even though it means they have to have a nurse in their home 24-7, um, their child may never get off the technology, or allowing their child to have the end of life, they feel like that's not a choice. Of course, they're going to choose this technology. And for other parents, they really do feel like that's a very real choice. And they really consider what quality of life they can give their child. Sometimes this does come down to, you know, whether the technology will have a benefit and the child might be able to get off of it at some point. Different understandings of death, different understandings of the theology of life, and, you know, what people believe about children and about parenting. It has a lot to do with identity as a parent, too. What does it mean as a parent to have to make these choices to parent a child who is going to have very different life milestones than a typically developing child who wouldn't be on this technology? I think a lot about those things. 
last four years, we've been foster parenting on and off, mostly short term. And it's, it's so different. It's like, I'm not comparing the two and yet having to make really crazy decisions for children that you're just like, how is this possible in the world? How is this happening? This is so beyond what my imagination can cope with in some ways, let alone the child's imagination. It's giving me this tiny peek, a really, really tiny into some of those, those tough decisions. The tough decisions mm-hmm. that a parent or a guardian has to make for their child. Yeah. Impossible. I sometimes use the phrase impossible. They're completely impossible decisions. It's impossible to comprehend these things. We do have to make these decisions as parents or guardians. And as surrogate decision makers, you know, adults reflect that they've had these same feelings at times around caring for mom or dad, siblings. How do you help the parents use their faith? Like, how do you bring in faith into these questions? So there are a lot of techniques. A big thing that I do is try to understand for each individual family, what applying their faith to these decisions looks like is quite different. And you may have two families that go to the same church, and they're going to tell me two very different things about what their faith is telling them. It is very individual. You know, the Anabaptist tradition is a little more collective. So that's in some ways been been a challenge, but also kind of seeing how that builds So really understanding what it means to apply faith. You know, I know from the research that I've done that families who are able to integrate and have language around how their faith is a part of their decision making, is a part of their parenting of a very sick or special needs child, have better outcomes. They have less depression. They have less caregiver burnout. So that's part of why I say this is so important. It's not just some sort of philosophical, wouldn't it be nice to integrate our faith? Um, It really matters. I do a lot of normalizing. Parents talk to each other on Facebook. Uh, They don't tend to talk about faith in a deep way on Facebook. So being able to say like a lot of parents who have been asked to make this decision have struggled with it, have not understood. Parents are not reporting to me that there's a billboard on their drive home that says, make this decision, love God. You know, that this struggle and having to make a decision when you don't even feel ready, when you don't feel you've had that voice from heaven, when, you know, all of these pieces. I have a lot of parents that hope for a miracle. And as time goes on, reckoning with that, maybe naming that the parent's original idea of what a miracle is, has changed. So actually being able to name, I feel I've really seen miracles. And in light of that, I feel able to maybe make different decisions for my child going forwards, I think is very helpful. My line often is very faithful parents have made both of these decisions. If there's two decisions on the table, maybe a breathing tube or allowing for natural death, I will say very faithful parents have made both decisions um, and kind of giving that permission. Mm -hmm. And helping the parents see how their faith might help them make those decisions. Mm -hmm. The miracle question is really tough, and thank you for kind of bringing that up because it's tough for us as physicians and nurses in the hospital because we so want those miracles too, and we Mm -hmm. can't always provide them to the family. And we, I can speak for myself at least, really appreciate the chaplaincy work to help us help the parents work through when those miracles don't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... I often find when it comes to to the miracle question, 
it is actually as much, if not more, work with the physicians and nurses, who I think part of the vicarious trauma of working with really sick kids is a little bit of reaction to, you know, to that because they've seen other kids not have a miracle. And so it can be kind of feel or not have a miracle in the way that they would want or the parents would want. I, I'll, I'll couch it that way. Can get a little bit frustrated. And so processing those feelings with staff as well, I think is sometimes as much as processing feelings with the parents. And, you know, I had a parent, I mean, oh my gosh, probably a parent who had the most language, like was, was most readily able to integrate her faith with her child's healthcare. Without me, I was just sort of sitting by and watching her do this just incredibly well. You know, she said to me after years of waiting, she said, you know, my friends just keep saying to me, why don't you have faith as big as a mustard seed? And, and I, th I thought I did. I thought I did. And so there's also that community component. And I said, like, your faith is the size of a coconut at this point. Um, we just, we don't know why this isn't happening in the way that we're asking. But that is not what's going on here. It's not that you do not have a strong faith. And so kind of getting to those messy places. But faith is messy. Mm -hmm. Faith is messy. Mm -hmm. And beautiful. We are clearly in an age of COVID, though I don't want to focus on COVID today. We, we've had some other podcasts that have focused on COVID, but I think it's hard to practice medicine or be in the hospital or be in hospice or be taking care of patients in any way without talking a little bit about it. So I just wanted to ask how COVID has changed your practice. Yeah, so I uh, operate, I call families on the telephone much more than I see them in person. I just went back last week to seeing families on my unit one day a week, and all the rest is by phone. You know, it's been interesting. I probably had the advantage, because I'm involved with research, and one of my research colleagues has done work on telechaplaincy prior to all of this, and one of her studies showed that it was a study on the feasibility of telephone chaplaincy versus in person. And actually the majority of the patients in that study said they preferred a telephone visit in their own home after an admission versus kind of, you know, being interrupted in the middle of a visit or, you know, or it felt interrupting or kind of vulnerable to have these conversations in the room. So that was just an interesting statistic. I have not found that most of my patients prefer the phone. But I have certainly had patients whom I did not connect with in the room. And that might be something about me. That might be, you know, just the reality of that moment. Maybe they're stressed about something else and kind of can't get to the place. There is the constant doctors and nurses in and out that make it slightly awkward and you're in the middle of a prayer and the nurse comes in and doesn't realize. And, and some of those things are stripped away. And I've, I've had incredibly deep conversations with parents who I wasn't able to do that with before. And then parents who I have really robust theological conversations within the hospital. I call on the phone and they're like, hi, yep, we're fine. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Just keep praying. Okay. Bye. You know, it's like, okay, well <laughs> I, I called like I did. So I think it is personality based, but for me, it's, it's almost an equal, an equal sum. Now my colleagues who work more with children, I, my, the population I work with tends to be nonverbal. And so working over the phone, Kind of it is talking to parents and I'm not necessarily trying to do Zoom calls with my patients who are nonverbal, which that may be a loss that I need to explore as well. But my colleagues who work with children have been really challenged. 
and my colleague, I have a colleague who's quite hard of hearing and that's, that's a challenge as well. It works well in person, but now with the mask, it's really hard and over the phone. But yeah, some things I have to use a phone interpreter for rare languages anyway. So I did a call the other day with a family from Uzbekistan and I needed the phone interpreter anyway. And I actually thought it was a lot less awkward standing there talking on the phone while the mom was talking on the phone instead of just sort of being in two different places. I actually thought really facilitated. So it sounds like some pros and cons of doing chaplaincy over the phone. But I I do get a sense from you that you prefer the in-person visit. I do. I think um, I I miss seeing the kids. I do miss seeing the kids you know, at whatever level they're able to interact, I, I, I appreciate that piece. Um, we, have, we have a large number on our unit um, of children who no longer have parent involvement. Um, so part of what I do and the way our county foster care system works, um, and I do not foster these kids, we cannot foster our patients, but part of the way the county system works is they do not identify foster parents until discharge. And so we have kids with us for a year or more without a primary caregiver. And we do spend a lot of time with those kids. And I, I, you know, I miss those kids. It's hard for them without the folks coming to see them per usual and just lots of pieces. So yeah, I do prefer the in-person, but it's been, it's been its own adventure. I won't, I think I will do calls with some of my parents going forward, even when we're back in person. Yeah, and it sounds like this has given you a chance to kind of figure out which parents would prefer the telephone call versus mm-hmm. the in-person visit. So it sounds to me that your hospital has kind of said that chaplains are quote-unquote non-essential providers, and so then they have to do their work via telemedicine or, or telephone. Is, is that correct? And So this whole question of essential, non-essential, I think it's been of, of great stress to a lot of folks in healthcare beyond just chaplains. I, my nurse colleagues have been quite, um, have had a lot of anxiety around it, um, a lot of feelings. There's just been a lot of feelings in healthcare, I think, because of COVID. Feelings of fear of getting sick, feelings of fear for our jobs, just living into a new normal, which really is what it is. I don't really know if we were deemed essential or non-essential but we were asked to step away except for one chaplain in the hospital. And even then we were only responding to the most necessary things in person. We're now stepping back in. There have been chaplains at other institutions. I've been doing some research around chaplaincy and COVID who have kind of formally been deemed non-essential. Sometimes that has meant they've needed to take a pay cut or some, some various things that have been really challenging in chaplaincy. And, you know, we are non-reimbursable. That is the phrase that gets thrown around a lot, except for our hospice colleagues, because there is a requirement in that licensing to have spiritual assessments, I believe, within seven days. But the rest of us are non-reimbursable. So I think that chaplains on the whole feel really vulnerable. And that's before COVID. That will be after COVID because the work that we do is non-reimbursable, it feels easy to be cut. We're grateful that nobody got cut at our hospital. There is the question of if somebody steps away, will their, will their position be replaced? So I think there's some thinking now that, that hospitals are gonna manage the fiscal situation via attrition more than necessarily by layoffs. And that's a big question. And it's a part of why I do research in the big picture is because we need to show we need to show outcomes. And, and those outcomes don't have to be lower blood pressure after a chaplain prays. Like 
that's where it's, people are like, do we really need to show that? But I, I think even greater patient satisfaction, a greater sense of feeling heard. Um, hospitals do care about that. Um, that does actually impact their bottom line in the long run because people will come back to a hospital where they felt heard or they felt their faith was honored or a chaplain accompanied them to a care conference or whatever it is. Thanks for speaking towards the vulnerability. A lot of healthcare providers feel very vulnerable, yes. felt very vulnerable during COVID, not knowing who was sick and seeing their colleagues get sick or themselves getting sick and seeing their patients so ill. And then also the hospital admissions were really down and all of, across the board. Mm -hmm. And so many people have been furloughed, laid off, and are facing salary cuts. So I think sometimes mm -hmm people who aren't in healthcare might not realize that the healthcare providers, including chaplains and physical therapists and everyone, we're all facing some of the, the same realities that people who are not in healthcare mm -hmm. are facing. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you've found out from your research recently that's kind of spurred you forward, especially in this time of COVID frantic research? Yeah. So the COVID frantic research. Yeah. I somehow found myself on for COVID-related chaplaincy research projects. You know, it's like they built up cumulatively and now I'm going, oh my goodness, um, what have I done? But it's, it is really exciting. It's a chance to look at how we respond to, to disasters. And that's really in some ways what this is, how we respond to humanitarian crises, how we respond to a pandemic. This is going to happen again. I hope and pray it is 100 years out again and it is, uh, we have learned a lot of lessons. The project I'm most excited about, I have no data for yet. It's coming, I think, tomorrow, actually. I'll get to take a look at it. But that's international, and that invites our chaplain colleagues from around the world. It went out to every single chaplaincy organization to share about how their practice has been impacted. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that perspective outside of the U.S. We're going to have to translate lots of things. We kind of have a language team going. Who's going to translate what? Because uh, we really wanted to include our colleagues who are not necessarily English-speaking because there's really important work being done there. And the pandemic has impacted different locations very differently. I hope that we get a lot of responses from our colleagues in the Global South and who are dealing with this without the kinds of infrastructure that the rest of us maybe have access to. So it has definitely impacted chaplaincy. Most people are still doing telemedicine, although some systems are, you know, I was surprised when I did some interviews last week that some systems have returned to almost almost business as usual in-person care. And there have been some systems that did not pull their chaplains to phone-based care really at all, but maybe utilize them in slightly different ways. So in systems where no visitors were allowed and patients were dying, I know one system where the chaplains were answering phone calls from loved ones instead of the nurses that usually do in order to, to take that burden off of the nurses. So just different, different possibilities. Chaplaincy is like so much about relationship building and comfort building. And we just, we talked just a little bit about how you can do it in person and over the telephone. And it's amazing to see our colleagues just take on this challenge and just switch um, so quickly. And churches have done the same thing. They've, yes. they've gone from this community of believers who comes together, prays together, shares together. And then all of a sudden we couldn't meet together and, and if some struggle to do Zoom church or Facebook live, yes. pre-recorded <laughs> services, but I'm not sure it's a, it's a hundred percent 
exactly like what we get when we gather together to worship and to pray. I'm sure you've given a lot of thought to this as an epidemiologist, as a chaplain, as a woman of faith. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. interested in, in hearing your thoughts about what we can do to worship safely together in the future. Yeah, it's such a big question. I agree. And I also have like a slight caveat around this idea that, that worshiping digitally, worshiping over Zoom, over Facebook Live, there's so many pieces that are missing. And, and it is completely true. There are so many pieces that are missing. There is no potluck. I'm obviously incredibly sad about that since that is why I came to the Mennonite Church. I mean, there are other reasons at this point, but you know, there are pieces that are really tough. I remember when I had one of my children in foster care, our long-term foster daughter, I was just exhausted and struggling and I actually didn't step into my church service for months. I just sat in the nursery with this usually screaming baby and like cried to the other moms. And that's what I needed from church. And that kind of connection is really hard right now. I'm screaming babies over zoom, like is even less adorable. And so how, how do we do that? And at the same time, like, my other side of that, there are people that can connect now that couldn't connect before. There are ways of engaging the wider community, which I think in this moment that we are witnessing in our country around the violence against Black people and Black bodies and the realization that we're not necessarily doing all that well in terms of listening to and understanding and integrating the Mennonite church and in in other Christian spaces, Zoom and and digital church also allows us new opportunities. I have churches that I know doing pulpit exchanges that could never do it before and getting new perspectives. So I I hold both pieces and I also hold, I'm I'm very cautious about going back uh, to in-person services. I think more so than a lot of my friends and it might be because I'm physically seeing children get this COVID test when I'm at work. It's not a pleasant process, by the way. I'm still physically very aware of that and aware of the fact that community is, is as important, more important maybe for our elderly, for our elders in the church, and this is going to be more of a risk. And so I very much advocate kind of going back in a dual way. We're continuing that Zoom, continuing that online offering while slowly getting to the in-person offerings and continuing to be creative. I think this has been an opportunity for churches to be creative in whole new ways. I do know a church that's just sort of doing a pre-recorded service, and that's been so fun. They've, they've engaged families who've never worship-led before, you know, who are able to do it now, and continuing to be creative to, to sort of have that dual format. In seminary, we had a discussion about online church, and I railed against it. So I am eating all of my words. I just said it was not Mennonite. I had very, like, purist ideas of what it was to be Mennonite at that point, um, which I'm not proud of now. But, you know, and now I'm really seeing that there's some value to this, and I, I do really appreciate that. So I'm, I'm quite conservative. I am a masks, hand-washing. I'm not so sure how I feel about the gloves. I'm not sure if the science is really bearing out that that piece is as helpful or if if by wearing gloves we might actually sort of forget how infectious our hands can be um, and assume we don't need to keep washing but yes I am I am a masks and eye protection the eye protection piece is really important and really that distance which is so hard I'm not actually seeing some of my friends kids right now I think it would be safe but I would have a really hard time not hugging them and I think that would be almost more of a challenge than 
watching boss baby simultaneously over zoom, which is how we're doing it currently and is quite fun. This has reminded me how important the potlucks are. I kind of hadn't thought about them whole, a whole lot, but like you're gonna, once we get back to potlucks, I'm gonna work harder and making sure our young adults have some good food. <laughs> what made you interested in pursuing the executive directorship at MHF? And, and really how has your faith led you here? So my career at this point has been much more, it's like there's that book series, a series of unfortunate events. I call it a series of fortuitous events. Things finding me. So last fall, a really passionate young physician was doing a rotation at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in palliative care, um, who happened to be on the board of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, and that was you. Um, and you, you sought me out, and you tapped me on the shoulder, and you said, hey, Kate, like, let me tell you more about MHF. You haven't been involved, which is the truth at that point. This is like a personal encouragement to be involved. There's some research done about how people became pastors. And the most powerful thing was someone tapping them on the shoulder and saying, hey, have you considered this? And so I've, I've said that multiple times, Joanne, like you just taking that time to say, hey, this fellowship really is a value to me as a Mennonite healthcare provider. I think it would be a value to you. I think you need to really consider this just as a member really impacted me. And then when a series of other events, I think, you know, when I saw it was actually a like pre, 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 pre-announcement of the opening. I uh, go to church with Claire House Settler, who's president of the board at this time, that the job would be coming open. I thought, you know, I'm doing a lot of national organizing around chaplaincy. A lot of these are transferable skills. And I'm really passionate about the Mennonite church. As someone who came to the church, being Mennonite is deeply important to me. And being Mennonite in all that I do, when I wake up in the morning and when I go to bed and all that I do in between and while I sleep is really important to me. I lived in a monastery for a while. That kind of deeply integrated life is something that I long for. And I think I found some of that when I came to the Mennonite Church. And so the idea of an organization that's providing resources, that's providing fellowship towards that deep integration of faith and life, which is also what I do professionally, right? With these decisions and these conversations with the parents I work with, like how do we integrate these things into a whole? And that cannot happen on the side of heaven perfectly, even at a monastery. But I see MHF as a beautiful resource for that. And there's just so many programs from the international side, I do do a lot of international work and I'm very passionate about the Mennonite church globally. I'm very passionate about chaplaincy globally to, you know, the SCT grants involving students to the ethics work that MHF has been involved in. And the fact that it's integrated between chaplains and the historic physicians association and nurses association, it was a bit of a no brainer in some ways. It was just, you know, would I get the job? <laughs> and I, you know, I, I so appreciate, you know, the, board's faith in me at this point. I am learning so much, uh, very, very quickly learning from the outgoing executive director, Paul Lichty, who is, I think, the most organized person I know and who, in the course of onboarding with him, he has shed many tears just out of passion and love for this organization. And seeing that has been just so inspiring. And I'm really excited to work with the board, to work with our members, to hear from our members what has been valuable about this organization and how can we continue to provide that and even grow our provision of what really helps you to find that wholeness and integration in your professional life.
I love your story of how you came to MHF and I am going to take it as a further inspiration to myself to continue to find other people who we can pull in to MHF because it, it is a fantastic organization. And the more people we have for the more diverse experiences, the more that we're going to be able to do. And that, that excites me. And I can, I can hear that, that some of that passion is, gonna, is coming from you as well. What are some of your hopes and aspirations for MHF? I know you've had the job now for maybe six weeks, but as you kind of like, what's kind of boiling in your mind? What do you, what do you think you'd like to accomplish as the director? It's actually four weeks today, <laughs> but yeah, you know, there's so many pieces to MHF. There's so many arms and wings and that has to do with the history and the history is also really robust and I'm excited. We're going to be able to take a look at that history and talk about it together in the coming months and years from our ethics side, I really hope for MHF to become that go-to, like, oh, of course we can ask MHF. Oh, of course MHF has resources for the Mennonite church as a whole, for congregations wrestling with medical ethics, which is so broad, right? Like end of life issues, end of life questions, end of life planning, beginning of life questions. You know, obviously uh, I harp on, and I can say that as a harpist, I harp on medical decision-making because I think it's so important. And for me, it's not necessarily what is the outcome of that decision, but what is the process? What is a nonviolent process to these things? How do we integrate our nonviolence into our medicine? So becoming a resource for the church in even broader ways than we have been, continuing to engage our young people through student elective term, our SET grants, our Stephen Roth um, grant program, Mary Jean Yoder. These are great programs and they're not only available to students, they're also available to some graduate and graduated and practicing healthcare providers. There's so many just amazing resources available through MHF. We are also connected with Mennonite Healthcare Services, which is a different organization that really is the professional organization for people at the management level of, say, the Mennonite affiliated nursing homes and places like Oakland and some other places. I've had some great conversations with Karen Lehman, who's there, CEO, you know, the reality is any doctor, any chaplain is also doing some administration. So how do we partner to, to provide some of those resources, not only to folks at the CEO level, but kind of to all the folks that are doing that. So I have a lot of ideas and mostly want to hear from, from our membership and from folks considering membership, what would be a value? Uh, what, would, what would keep you in MHF? What would help you be excited about MHF? You know, once COVID is over, if it will ever be over, once we find a new normal, these regional gatherings, student gatherings, and our annual retreat gathering, I'm really excited for. I'm so glad that you have joined us. It's going to be exciting. I want to thank our listeners today for listening to this podcast, Menno HealthCast. As I spoke with Kate, our new executive director, it's great to have her here, and it's great to welcome her today to this new position for her. If you're interested in donating or getting involved with MHF, please go to our website at mentalhealth.org and click on the link in the top right corner or email us at info at mentalhealth.org. During these tough times, we need you to financially support the mission of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue the dialogue about the intersection of faith and health. If you're interested in telling your coronavirus story, please email me at info at mentalhealth.org. Kate and I have talked a little bit offline about the challenges of these days, and we really want to reach out to people who are lamenting the loss of jobs, 
those who are lamenting the loss of lives, those who yes. are lamenting the loss of normalcy. And we especially want to reach out to our colleagues and our friends and our listeners who are people of color and who are suffering so much right now. And we as an organization will come out of this tough time, re-energized to do our best to bring peace to the racial injustice that we see. We wanna thank you again for listening. We wanna thank Paul Schlitz for the music that he's provided. We wanna thank Eugene Stevanis for the editing and production credits. And I wanna thank you for listening. I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger. Please join us again next time. <laughs>